1: It is we believe that everything has a history. We mean absolutely everything. So it's not just objects we 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 think about emotions, we think about bizarre things as well.
3: That was Sam Willis talking about his distinctive approach to examining the past.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's episode is a joint interview with the historian and broadcaster Sam Willis and Professor James Daybell of the University of Plymouth. Together, they've written a new book entitled Histories of the Unexpected. And this was the subject of their conversation with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorne.
0: So today I'm down in Exeter and I'm joined by uh, Sam Willis and James Daybell who are the hosts of the Histories of the Unexpected podcast and they're also the authors of a new book based on the podcast of the same name. Um, So the series looks at the surprising histories behind everything um, in our everyday lives from beards and clouds and clocks to courage, bubbles, smiling and even holes. So to start us off, I wonder whether you could just tell us what is the idea behind histories of the unexpected?
1: The idea behind histories of the unexpected is, um, it's deceptively simple. Um, it is. we believe that everything has a history. We mean absolutely everything, so it's not just objects. We, we, we think about emotions, we think about bizarre things as well. So we've done, done one on the lean, for example. We're really interested in the history of people leaning over and buildings leaning over. Um, what we wanted to do was to demonstrate that everything has a history, but also there's another key part of it, and that is that everything links together in unexpected and often rather magical ways. So that's what we do.
2: So, for example the history of the hand uh, links to scrofula and the royal touch or the history of clouds uh, is actually about um, miasma and cholera. Yes. Um, Or the history of the smile or the history of cats or the history I found out the other day of the bubble is in fact all about the French Revolution.
1: That's right. So we we come up with these these ideas. We 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 sort of challenge ourselves to write a history of something which we weren't necessarily sure had a history, um, and then I mean it, it's always like it's like a professional challenge between us, isn't it? It's a game. Can you write the history of dust, <laughs> or can you write the history
2: of snow, or mountains, or it's, whatever? Yeah. Was one of the one of the weirdest things recently was when we were when we were thinking about how to turn the podcast into a book. Uh, we went for a long walk and just tried to come up with uh, with 30 different topics. And I remember having having sort of finalised everything and then driving home, Sam sort of looked at a tree and saw it tilting over. And he said, we should do the history of the lean. And I thought, that's brilliant, but I had no idea <laughs> yeah. how on earth we were going to be able to do it.
0: So where did the very first concept for this come up? It
1: came from? up from... Um, the idea originally came from me when I was leading a tour around HMS Victory, and I was explaining all about the ship and the battles it had fought in and all the crew that had been on board and what they ate, the kind of the predictable standard things in history that you might expect. Uh, and then we walked around to the, the stern of the ship, and if you can imagine HMS Victory in your mind, it's got an amazing window at the back. It's like a it's like a, um, a conservatory. It's like a conservatory on the back of a tank. This thing is built as a warship, but it's glazed it's an extraordinary thing and someone said to me why is this window here and i have a phd in naval history i've written an enormous amount of books on naval history i had no answer and then it i looked into it i thought what is the what is the history of the window and it's more than that it's actually the history of looking in the 18th century and you can only explain why there is a window on the back of a sailing warship if you understand the history of looking, particularly looking through windows in the 18th century. And it's amazing. Anyway, I then suggested this to James, and I thought, I'm I'm doing something slightly off the wall here. He said, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, because oranges
2: are all about the gunpowder plot. I thought, what? But I also said the history of the window is not about the Enlightenment and about ways of looking. It's, in fact, all about defenestration. It's all about the start of 30 Years' War and throwing people out of windows. Yeah. Um, Or it's about um, iconoclasm, and it's about smashing windows. Yeah. Um, And then we realised
1: that we're trained completely differently as historians. I'm trained in 18th century maritime naval history primarily, although I have done a lot of other stuff, and you're primarily a... um, Manuscripts. uh, Manuscripts, um, Tudor history, early modernist. Yeah. And if you... We discovered that if you get a theme or an idea or a subject, um, we both had things to say about it, but they were both completely different. And that kind of blew our minds and made the whole process of discovery absolutely fascinating. Because when you have two historians coming at the same thing from a different perspective, you realise that there's a kind of mind-blowing complexity of history and this is a good way of exposing that. Yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, I yeah? mean,
2: for me also, it's about... I always say that it's a combination of sort of comparative history, comparative and global history, a sort of cultural history, um, meets... Uh, sort of um material culture and object biography so there, there is actually this sort of deep um methodological core to it as well, yeah I think, as well as it being
1: very silly very <laughs> very silly
2: and 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 fun but it, it but intellectually it's really it's really interesting. How do you take a topic and look at it from all sorts of different angles and think about it across time globally you know spatially? in that in in the round like that.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the things we do is we don't we don't necessarily provide the answer. Um what well, we, we do in the book, that's what we did in the book, but a lot of the podcast is is kind of raising questions. So if you say think off the top of your head what is the history of lions about? Um and then we we would say well, it's all about uh, the symbolism of lions on shields or on yeah, it's ships. all about it's all about
2: Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, and who's the the Lion of Sweden, yeah. uh, sort of uh, 17th century, uh, fantastic uh, leader uh, of Sweden, and it's about the sinking of the Vasa ship.
1: So you'd just been on holiday yep. in Sweden, you'd just seen it. Yep. So for you, lions were all about this sunken warship yep. and it was about this, this symbol of Swedish monarchy. But for you, they were Swedish about pets. Monarchy. They were about uh, pet lions. Pet lions, but also I'd just been reading something on The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Um, Just weirdly, and the cowardly lion... In The Wizard of Oz. Um, and that's got an amazing history to it. And someone had finally worked out what on earth The Wizard of Oz is all about. And it's, um, it's, it's a sort of hugely complex commentary on America in the 1920s. And um, for years, no one had understood it. But some, as a history teacher in America, came up with the answer about the 1920s. Yep. He suddenly realised that it wasn't just one thing that was symbolic in The Wizard of Oz. It was all of it. It was the yellow brick road, it was the tin man, it was the cowardly lion. So for me... Lions were all about the Wizard of Oz at that time, and then they were about hunting lions. I got quite into mountain lions. lions. Pet
2: lions, lions in zoos. Yeah. Um,
1: It sounds quite scatterbrainy, but it's not, because it is actually all linked together.
0: Well, that leads me on to my next question, which is you come up with these concepts, you go on a long walk and you say, right, we're doing the history of bubbles. Where on earth do you start?
2: I mean, one of the things that we tried to do with the book was to bring in quite a lot of personal... Mm anecdotal information to sort of breathe that sort of personal angle into it but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of research that goes into it so one of the first things we do we both have access to university libraries and databases of articles and, and books and so there's a lot of sort of bibliographical research that goes on around it
1: and a lot of contacts and colleagues professional we know an awful lot of professional historians
2: I mean, I think also we've been we've been in this business for between us like fifty years, yeah. And so you you know, so um, you pick up a lot on the way. And you know, I, for example, have taught. Um, I taught in, for a while in the US, and so I taught the equivalent of a sort of Plato to NATO course. And so I've got this huge sort of reach uh, of history that I that I sort of. Um, you know, use all the time.
1: The way we start is definitely to open up the box of our heads and look and rummage around inside, because that's always gives you a solid foundation to be able to talk off the top yeah. of your head. Anyway, I have this experience of finding some letters in the National Archives that talked about bubbles or whatever, yeah. um, and then, or it so you've actually got an answer, or you you kind of. You use your brain to think about what aspect of that you would like to understand. So when we did bubbles, I knew that I'd seen a painting, an 18th century French painting, a, a yep. beautiful painting of a boy leaning over a windowsill blowing a bubble. Um, I couldn't remember what it was, but I knew that that would be my starting point and I'd be able to talk about that bubble. And I also knew just vaguely that Newton, Isaac Newton, had worked out how to measure the thickness of a bubble. Um, and then I so I that was going to be the things that I talked about.
2: And for me, it was about childhood. So it's about children blowing bubbles. And there's a wonderful collection of bubble blowers at the Victorian Albert Museum of Childhood. And uh, so we did some some work on that. Just also, little
1: pipes that people blow bubbles. Pipes,
2: in. Yeah. Um, and they're all sorts of, you know, and people collect these. The collectible sort of plastic items. But also I wanted to think about the bubble as a concept. And you know, people living in a bubble, so sort of enclosed. And this got us to thinking about monasticism, early monasticism. Hermits. Uh, hermits. We're thinking about, I mean, monasticism and hermits and then um, thinking about the different kinds of bubbles, like the Oxford bubble, the, the Westminster bubble. But then also this led us to ornamental hermits. Uh, and in the 18th and 19th century, ornamental hermits were people who would live in your garden. Uh, and you would go along, and, and you would see them, and they're, they're the precursor to the garden gnome, uh, which we have nowadays.
1: I really enjoy bubbles. It's one of the ones yeah. I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of the lean, because we weren't sure how we were going to do it, and the bubble. I liked hair. You liked hair. I was wanting to go back to the lean because just quickly, okay, go on, go on, um, because go on. that was that was for. It was all about leaning buildings. So it's a, it was a change from medieval architecture. So if you think of the shambles in York. Um, where you 've got the tiny, narrow medieval streets, all the streets crowded over leaning over each other, and there are no straight lines anywhere and then you 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 contrast that with um paris like nineteenth century yeah. paris which being all of the medieval stuff's been removed everything 's straight lines, everything's very perpendicular and it was all to do it was all to do with like the fear of the medieval the fear of um superstition, it was to do with uh, the fear of disease and cleanliness yeah. reflected in buildings and then and then we did the human lean. Um, Which is to do with the history of walking sticks and the way that disabled
2: sailors are depicted in contemporary cartoons. And then we did then we did the Hollywood lean. Oh, that was so cool, James 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 Dean. And then it was about deportment. And then it was about about leaning on people.
1: Ladies walking around with with, ladies walking around with books on their heads. But then
2: leaning on people was about gangsterism uh, and about thumbscrews, Which then led to the signature. Led to the signature.
0: So they do all lead on from one another in the yes. book, all the topics, yes. um, as you say, the lean leads on to the signature.
1: Yeah. James, you wanted to write or talk about leaning on people and pressure and bullying people, basically, which led on to the history of torture. And then we were doing Guy forks and Thumbscrews. And he's got this very famous signature of him signing a confession yeah. to um, being responsible for the gunpowder plot, which has been signed in a very kind of shaky hand. And then we suddenly found ourselves with Guy Fawkes' signature, which had been written after he'd been tortured. He'd yeah. been lent on quite it's severely. And we suddenly went, Oh. But the history of the signature's interesting because I noticed that what that Guy Fawkes' signature had at that moment changed from Guy Fawkes before being tortured to Guy Fawkes after being tortured. So Guy Fawkes's he his signature itself had a little personal history um which kind of followed his his life experience. Yeah. And then I the signature was fantastic, wasn't it? Nelson's got a very interesting signature because uh, he lost an arm. So his his signature has a personal history as well. This is just one aspect of the signature. Um, You can talk about where you sign letters, which is really interesting. So this is the history of... It's people who have been injured. They might have suffered a stroke. That's very common. It's one of the most common things that affects people's handwriting, funnily enough. Um, And... So Nelson loses an arm. I mean, he has to learn to write left-handed. Um, so he, he has a, a new signature. We've got we've got letter showing his first attempt at writing left-handed, different kind of signature. And then he, he, his, his name changes. He goes from vice-admiral to... Well, he goes promoted up to vice-admiral. Um, he, he then gets knighted. He then becomes a baron. He has to change his... He doesn't know what to call himself. He has this kind of terrible personality crisis... And kind of practices with different names. He becomes Baron Nelson Bronte, Baron of the Nile, and you know it it gets very confusing. Um, So yeah, his personal
2: signature changes. (laughs) So you've got a kind of chronology of the signature that develops over time. But the signature is also a way of looking at Tudor politics. So if you think about the, if you think particularly in the reign of Henry VIII, the king's signature was one of the mechanisms for. Uh, getting anything done and for power, and who had control of his sign manual. So that's the signet um, was very important. The signature is also about universal literacy. So it's a way of measuring I literacy across, across time. So how does that work? So basically, like... you the a very sort of crude measurement for literacy, so the ability to read and write, is whether you can sign your name or not. Um, and it's not perfect, but what it means is you can look at it across time you can look at it all over the world. All you need to do is collect signatures. The distinction is between whether somebody signs or makes a mark. If they sign, they're deemed to be literate. If they make a mark, they're deemed to be illiterate. And so you can get these sort of huge statistics, mm. you know, over time and look at how, how literacy shifts and changes over time.
3: Wait,
1: will, problem, William Shakespeare's you the, parents? Yeah. Literate yeah. Both, or illiterate?
2: Both, both, um, both wrote marks. Yeah. So we have property documents that survive...
1: So a mark is like a little squiggle yeah. because you it might be a cross, spell your
2: name. Across. But some of them are very elaborate. So merchants would have had very elaborate marks that would have been you know, a butcher might have had a I don't know, a pig's head or something. What or, would yours have been? You know, what would mine have been? Day bell. I've no idea. <laughs> day and a you know, I don't I suppose a half a bell, uh, and then a sun, mm. you know, on on it. Not a smiley face. Uh, they're basically emojis, it aren't could they? Could be could be as much. Basically emojis. I want to go back to um, <laughs> we, we we lost the thread of what we were talking about earlier on, which was this idea about the about everything leading into each other. So one chapter leading on to, to the next. And I think at the heart of the, the concept of this book, as Sam said at the beginning, is that everything has a history, but also everything links together in unexpected ways. So one of the things that we wanted to do in this book was to basically show how each chapter led to the next. And then the clever thing is, am oh, I allowed to say it was clever? I think it is quite clever. Uh, <laughs> but the, the whole book comes full circle. So we start with the hand, we go through gloves, blah, 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 blah. We end up with the lean and the signature, and then the signature leads back to the front of the book, which encourages our readers uh, to, for a second read.
1: Yeah, I think they'll um, need it because they won't know what we're talking about.
2: <laughs> but, 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 one, but one of the interesting things is how we achieved that. So we didn't sit down and sort of go, right, the hand, next comes the gloves, next comes... We came up with 30 different topics some of them naturally flowed into each other but then we had to very we had a stage once we'd written all the chapters we then had a couple of weeks where we worked you know very hard on forming these links
1: how does clocks move into needlework for example how does rubbish go
2: into snow how how does how does clocks move into needlework
1: i can't Um... remember
0: So it's all essentially a massive um, game of degrees of separation.
2: Yes, exactly Exactly. what it is.
1: Mm -hmm. I think what we wanted to do is to tap into the kind of mind-blowing complexity that scholars, professional historians, have achieved. They use all sorts of different approaches, all sorts of methodologies, research techniques. There are people doing PhDs now which are absolutely mind-blowing, wonderful stuff. And we wanted to find a way of sort of tapping into that complexity but are also making still making it accessible and fun um, and i think we've done it but yeah. it's we, we, all yeah. we try and do as well is root it in in the latest most interesting research
2: yeah yeah i think that i think that's right and we've both written those the other other kinds of history you know we both you have a career of of writing maritime history no, I've written biographies um, i've written biographies. histories of
1: battles yep. very kind of straightforward yep. stuff but we wanted to deliberately Mess it up.
0: I think that raises an interesting point about public history generally, which you're both very involved yeah. in. Do you think we're over reliant on standard narratives?
1: No, I just don't think. Um, I don't think that at all. I, I, I don't think it's being reliant on it. I just think you haven't been presented with enough options,
2: mm-hmm. basically. Um, yeah, public history is incre- it's an incredibly complex and contested area, um, you know, and I think in some ways. Academic historians you know preaching to the public uh, can be slightly patronizing um, and that's something i'm you know very wary of there's another sort of side of public history which is about the public having ownership of that history
1: and I think some publishers can also important. be publishers people who make people who make books and people who make TV programs can be very conservative so you can come up with a crazy idea like this and you know might you know some might say well actually if you wrote a biography of Nelson, that's got an established market, we know that'll sell. Um, and so we've been working with Atlantic Books. They've been absolutely fantastic and have, and have embraced um, us trying to sort of change the paradigm of it. Um, yeah. But not everyone thinks like that. It's even harder getting um, off-the-wall stuff on telly that tends to be very predictable or very much based around discovery, what's in the news, what's, what's, what's the kind of the latest thing.
0: Something I found interesting in the book is that it's not just um, irreverent, bizarre facts. There is actually some real serious, sometimes quite dark history in here as well. Yeah, yeah. And you weren't absolutely. afraid to shy away from that.
2: No, no, no. no. I mean, it, that's, that's very, very important. I mean, for example, the chapter on needlework, we discovered these um, memory cloths. Um, of women who had lived through apartheid, and what they'd done was they had stitched their life stories into these memory cloths that became part of the sort of um, the, the sort of um, reconciliation program. Um, and you've got some wonderful examples, but incredibly harrowing—you um, know, pictures of rape and 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 murder and and all sorts of crimes. So that sort of starts off the chapter, that then leads through discussions of the giving of gifts and tapestries. There's oh, the Armada tapestries. In Ireland. Abuse in Ireland. And there's this, wonderful, um, there's this wonderful discussion of the materials at the Foundling Museum. The Foundling Museum, the sort of museum set up for orphan children. And there's some wonderful work done on this. Um, when mothers left their children, they left them with little fragments, yeah. little pieces of fabric, um, that, are, that, that I would identify them later on, um, which, are, which are wonderful sort of emotional pieces um, that sort of connect um, mothers to children and, and stories about, about orphans. But also you've got, about, you've got several thousand examples of these that survive and it is one of the best collections of ordinary people's clothing and material that survives from that period. So it's not... I mean,
1: I think the point to make is the book's not a kind of frivolous miscellany. It's very serious history, which taps into some of the latest research, and, and, but the whole book is written as a narrative. It does all link together and it all kind of follows yeah. through. It's very thoughtful history, which deals with some light-hearted subjects, but also some very serious subjects. I mean, yeah. you can't write the history of hair without thinking about the collections of hair that are left at Auschwitz.
2: Yeah, or scalping. Or history um, scalping, yeah. And also, I think we tried to write a we tried to write a literary book as well. Hmm. We tried to write something that I think was was really good prose. Um, I think that was something that was really important to both of us to mm-hmm. write, so that it is a joy to read. Um, that's the kind of book I like reading.
0: And <laughs> um, At the back of the book, you have a page for readers' suggestions, which oh. I don't think is something I've ever seen in a book <laughs> that, was his, that was his
2: brilliant <laughs> idea. Um,
0: <laughs> what's on your own personal list, though, of what you want to cover next? Ooh. Oh, God, we
2: have a list of, like, 200. I want to do Wales. So we, I've read Moby Dick over, over the summer as one of my sort of each summer I read it, I have to read a great American novel. I read Moby Dick, and it's like... It's, I mean, it's wonderful, brilliantly written, uh, kind of like sort of reading through treacle. Uh, but I want to do Wales. Yeah, you want to do Whales. We did, um... Handwriting. We're going to do handwriting. Yeah. A mischief. I wanted to do... Tattoos. Yeah. Teeth. We're, we're writing, we're writing a little book uh, at the moment about the Vikings, yeah. and teeth are coming into that.
1: I do the history of chewing instead of chewing. Teeth. I think chewing. I do the is history amazing. of saliva. A spit. We wanted to do spit. No, Tongue horrible. We were going to do spit because we were going to do spitting in World War Two. That's um, Ooh, it's, nice. so uh, uh, Ooh, Hitler nice. very famously spat a lot. But and there's also an interesting history of anti-Semitism and people spitting at Jews throughout um, the the 30s and then throughout the Second World War, and it happens now. Um, so there's a really interesting... And spittoons
2: as well. Spittoons. So
1: I, I'm chewing and spit, <laughs> is where yeah. I've started.
0: Have you found that since you've written the book, um, you've been going about your everyday life yes. and something or an <laughs> I, action is a in On a daily, on a like, daily basis. Yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely
1: on a recipes, daily basis. Recipes, that was the one that came to us because James was like, oh, I like cooking. I, I, do, I make a recipe. And I was like, oh, my God, let's do the history of recipes. I bet they're amazing. Lists. Lists were fantastic. Who Ta- knew how important lists are?
2: Tattoos. And this comes about because a a colleague of mine was telling me an anecdote about um, somebody that he knew whose husband or partner had died and she'd had the ashes uh, sort of um, put into ink and then tattooed onto her back as a sort of... Token. So right, that got me thinking about where we need to do the history of tattoos. Yeah.
1: Wells, I'd like to do history Wells. The um, history of Wells is fascinating because it's all to do with the history of urbanism, urban growth. Um, and, Cows. And hang on. Sorry. So Wells are also like chimneys in the... <sighs> you find the most amazing stuff in them. So the history of yep. chimneys is obviously it's about chimney sweep, blah, 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 it's all about architecture, that's kind of boring. It's not, it's about what you find in chimneys and we find the most extraordinary things up chimneys. Shoes. Shoes, cats, um, but letters. People. Um, there was one collection of um, childhood letters for Father Christmas which have been burnt, semi-burnt, been whipped up the fire and then got stuck. And so builders have been then finding them in sort of present modern renovation so go and look up your chimney there's someone found an early 17th century map of the world <laughs> stuck up their chimney it would have been a bit drafty so at some point someone had take there are only like four of these things on earth um and it was found in pieces up a chimney <laughs> and they've like loads of legal documents chimneys are basically archives, yep. and i reckon that wells are as well but you find all sorts of stuff down wells like an archive
2: secret rooms you've come across the Tresham papers yeah. Tresham papers they they this 16th century recusant family so they are you know they're catholic and they decided that they were going to um, hide all of their all of their family papers uh, hiding now that's hiding. a good one history of hiding but they put they, they put them in a in a, a sort of an oil skin cloth and wrapped it all in wax yeah. and then put it inside a chimney and then bricked it all up huh. And when the Historical Manuscripts Commission uh, during the 19th century went round the country in the UK um, looking at um, private collections of manuscripts, they came across this and lo and behold, there was this amazing collection of family papers from the Elizabethan period that are now in the British Library.
1: It's kind of... It links to our history of holes. We thought, how do you do the history of holes? Holes are brilliant. It's hide, people dig holes and hide them in. So it's from hordes, people peering through walls yep. and spying on each it's other. about sex.
2: about voyeurism.
1: Yeah, it's about watching people. Yeah, holes, history of holes is absolutely amazing. It's bit of people dropping things out of their pockets.
0: It seems like there is literally nothing that you can do a history of. If you can do a history of a hole, which is essentially... Yep. A, <laughs> it is a game. History A of hole silence. with nothing in it. Oh, the history of amazing. silence.
2: That's one that we want to do. I read Dermot McCulloch's book on silence and 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 Christianity, um, silence and religion. And I think something on that will Tell be amazing. So it's about people
1: choosing to be silent, when they choose to be silent, and people being deliberately made to be silent. Um, that's good.
2: But there is there is nothing you can just keep going. Cows. Well, I, I was talking. Earlier, I wanted to do cows. Nazi super cows. What? That's going to be in our World War Two book. Oh, the Nazi super cow, which was uh, the attempt to to to, to uh, rear these amazing cows. You imagine that, you know, the sort of big chickens that you get with enormous sort of breast meat? Yeah, yeah. Um, or the same with cows. So you just have this sort of stuffed up, like a sort of cow on steroids. So that's for
1: example, you could do the history of cows or you could do the history of rearing.
2: We, 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 do, we do have a master list. Yeah. And occasionally we we ask people to make suggestions. And people, people on Twitter are so good at... Uh, coming up with ideas and which just lengthens the list that we have to to do.
0: If somebody came and read your book or listened to your podcast, what do you really want them to take away from it? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. I would like them to take away the fact that history is a much more creative process than a lot of people take it to be. Um, it's a lot of people. It's like you, you learn a story, you tell the story, and it's about remembering facts, about remembering dates. And it's not. It's about thinking creatively. Yeah. So what I'd like people to do is to, is to suddenly realise that it's, it's it is an art form. Basically, you, you you found it in knowledge, you found it in proof, and use good research to do so. But the the way to be a professional historian, or even an amateur historian, is to think creatively about the past ask yourself questions and find out the answers. That's basically it. But if you don't think creatively and you don't... If you can't see the holes, the gaps that need to be filled in, then you're not doing it quite right. But hopefully this will allow people to realise that there's histories of extraordinary things and if they think about it right, they'll come up with an idea and then they'll realise that there isn't a history about it.
2: So it's a sense of intellectual curiosity... With it as well, but I think also one of the things that we are passionate about is making history accessible and making history fun. I think it's it's making history enjoyable to as broad a range of people as you can. I mean, as a professional historian, you know, biggest conversations not for sometimes, you know, at a dinner party or when you're meeting people, um, you tell them you're a historian and they say, "I hated I hated history at school," and I've heard that you know for years and years and years. And what I think has been really heartwarming is just the interaction with people who listen to the podcast and hopefully who will read the book, is that they suddenly sort of see history as something that is incredibly interesting and vibrant and vibrant. And I think that's the big that's the big thing. People who don't want to sit down and read a dense biography of you know Churchill or, or they're not into military history or whatever, you know, if they if they listen to the podcast or read the book, they're going to get something that is, you know, really exciting, yeah. dynamic, um, that will really make them think.
3: That was Sam Willis and James Daybell. You can read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Anne Boleyn's family, the Munich crisis of 1938 and women of ancient Rome, among other things. Sam and James' book, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History, is due to be published early next month by Atlantic. And the two authors will be discussing the book at our History Weekend events in York and Winchester, which are now just a few weeks away. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And that is all for today, but we'll be back on Thursday when Peter Hitchens will be challenging the traditional narrative of the Second World War.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.